the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, August 20th. We've got another fantastic edition of Getting to the Point, our podcast series brought to you by our friends at Aerobar, where we focus on the importance of nutrition and fitness to the modern game of tennis. And today's guest knows all about those two things, and he's seen the way tennis has developed over these past 20, 25 years as he served as a high-level coach throughout the duration of that time. Of course, he is also involved as one of the tournament directors in the boys and girls 12s and 14s Junior Orange Bowl tournament. Now, those of you that know the junior circuit well will know that the Orange Bowl is one of the Super Bowls on the junior calendar internationally. It's an event that draws the best talent from across the globe. And so, of course, today's guest, Coach Robert Gomez, has seen so many talented players filter through the Orange Bowl, and it was great to get to ask him about all of the talent he's seen, who are the players who have stuck out to him over the years, how have the the type of athletes that are competing in tennis and the way he trains his young developing players, how has that changed over these past 20 years with the development of modern fitness and, you know, the, the renewed importance on nutrition that seems to have come about over these past 5, 10 years. Of course, Robert's also able to offer insight on the way the mindset of, you know, tennis players have changed in developing the role that specialization in sports, you know, people choosing to take tennis seriously full-time at a younger age than maybe they once did when back in the day you would play tennis, baseball, soccer, basketball, and then, you know, once you became 14, 15, maybe that's when you would focus and lock in to any of, or to a specific sport. You know, Robert talks about the way that those changes have affected the way you can coach a player. Of course, Andrew Golub, Mark Aerosmith, also coaches, uh, joining us from the Aerobar crew, able to give their experiences off of that as well. Robert also coached Andrew and Mark when they were both young players before they had gotten to the University of Miami. So it was really fun to hear him talk about that as well. And, you know, it's always fun when we get to do these getting to the point episodes. So, of course, we talk about that. Most importantly, Robert Gomez gives you a firsthand testimonial of why Aerobar is the product all of you tennis fans should be choosing as you choose what sort of fuel to put into your body, what sort of sustenance you need to maximize your performance on the court. And we say it all the time, but, you know, Aerobar is the only specific tennis energy bar out there available more potassium than a banana delicious chocolate chip and cinnamon honey oat flavors and again you're just putting good ingredients in your body and I'm the sort of guy who I can't get bloated in the morning you know eggs pancakes potatoes whatever it may be if I eat them I'm immediately falling back asleep maybe you're like that as well well you should know that is not the sensation you're going to get with Aerobar it's going to be just the quick boost you need to start your day you're going to have the sort of fuel you need but you're not going to feel overwhelmed and more importantly it tastes delicious so be sure to turn to our friends at Aerobar use our promo code cracked 15 while you're on their website aerobar.com you'll get an additional 15% off you'll let them know we sent you there as well so really excited for all of you to hear today's episode with uh, Robert Gomez again former coach of pros like Julian Roger a former coach of 
current University of Virginia men's tennis head coach Andreas Pedroso. So, you know, it's a really fun conversation. We cover all of those sorts of things. Of course, this mini break podcast, as I said at the top, is your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. I have a couple of those I want to touch on quickly before we get to today's episode because, again, it is New York time, folks. We are all so excited for this three-week bubble in New York to begin Western and Southern, followed by the U.S. Open. And after a five-month hiatus, folks, five-plus months of no coordinated pro tour action, we get a joint event already qualifying for the men's and women's Western and Southern Open beginning today. I know I speak for all of us when I say we're so excited to see our favorite pros back on the court, and we're going to be treated to some spectacular matches, folks, because the qualifying draws have come out, and I mean, you look at the names, you just see so many of, uh, you know, back when there was tennis in 2020, I know it was a lifetime ago, but the hottest players on the tour, and of course, players who are within the top 100. This is a Masters event, a premier mandatory event. We are getting thrown right to the wolves, folks, in terms of the level of tennis we should expect to see. And I mean, there are already some battles, right? You've got a Jill Simona Taro Daniel first round. That's really fun. Jeremy Chardy versus Emil Rusevori. Emil Rusevori, of course, one of the hottest players on the Challenger Tour before play stopped. That's a really fun one. Davidovich Fakina Barankis. You can just have my money. Dennis Kudla versus Alias Badene. Uh, Dominic Kopfer versus Juan Ignacio Landero, Mackie McDonald, Yuki Sagita. I mean, folks, Brandon Nakashima taking on Fuksovic's round one. That's really fun. Jordan Thompson, Michael Moe. Hello, two hours of physicality. I mean, you've got the Sin Man in there, Cam Nori, Marcos Giron, Laszlo Jur, Mikhail Yimmer, J.J. Wolf. I mean... How many moon are you can go on and on and on, folks. This is literally a preview of what you're gonna see. First round of the US Open, all of these players here in New York playing this qualifying action. Obviously, to see a couple of wild cards like JJ Wolf, Brandon Nagashima from the American side, uh, that's always going to pique my interest. But expect some really good tennis, folks, above anything else. And if you're asking me right now who are players I expect to see come through qualifying, I think Sun Wu Kwan, the young Korean player, 22, 23 years old, he has just been so good on hard courts of late, just so solid off of both wings. I think he's going to look really good. I mean, J.J. Wolf is playing spectacular tennis, folks. Do not sleep on him. And we're all ready to crown Brandon Nakashima as the next big thing in American men's tennis. So hopefully he's able to continue all of the momentum he built up uh, during the EXO Tour because obviously we are all so excited to see what he's got as pro play resumes. But we're really excited, and I wish I could give you all a place to watch the streams directly. If you want to search around on gambling sites, you can find them. I will say it is also a little bit frustrating for sure uh, to know that, you know, Tennis Channel and others aren't just streaming this directly. Tennis TV, I mean, what are we doing here? Pro Tennis is back and you're not going to give us fans an easy mechanism to see it? That's just ridiculous. I mean, what are we doing here? This is why tennis has these problems. If it's not going to be accessible to the fans, why the f*** are we playing anyways? Um, so yeah, I'm a little bit frustrated to say the least that we don't have an easy access stream to this, but you know, nevertheless, uh, just speaking, I know on behalf of all of us tennis fans, when I say we are so excited for play uh, to be continuing now, and you know, it's a really fun men's qualifying draw. It's an equally fun women's qualifying draw as well. And as I say over and over, you know, it's wide open 
right now in the women's game. And listen to this. In a final round of qualifying, you could have Jill Teichman taking on Shelby Rogers. How incredible would that be? The finalists last year in Le- uh, last week in Lexington taking on a semifinalist. That would be a final round qualifying match. You could also have, you know, Layla Fernandez in qualifying. She's got a really fun one versus Blinkova in her first match. She could take Christiana in a final round there. Jess Pagula, who's been playing so well, she's in qualifying. And Lee in qualifying. You know, Laura Sigamund, who's played a ton of tennis of late, she's in qualifying. I think it's going to be a really fun one between Jasmine Paolini and Caroline Dollahide round one. I mean, again, CC Bellis, Madison Bringle, there's two hours of physical tennis. Taylor Townsend, Astra Sharma, that's going to be really fun as well. You know, so many great players in the draw here. Another physical battle, by the way, on the bottom. Katie Valinets taking on Monica Puyan, the both, the all we've been on the Crack Interviews podcast battle. Um, yeah, it's going to be a really, really fun uh, streak of events. You look at Francesca DiLorenzo in the draw as well. I mean, Robin Montgomery, the immensely talented young. American is in there too. And by the way, for Robin Montgomery, just going to throw this in here now. Uh, you know, she has recently the 15 year old Orange Bowl champion. Uh, she signed with IMG Tennis. She is going to be repped by Jill Smoller, Carlos Fleming, and Caroline Ebner. Uh, and they, I believe, want, they uh, rep Venus as well. They're going to be repping the young 15 year old who's ready to turn pro. And I mean, throw her on the list of talented young American women, which of which there are so many, uh, but she certainly belongs in it if you're talking about the future of the women's game uh, you know she belongs in the same conversation as maybe not a golf or an Anisimova yet just because of what they've proven on the pro tour but think about those two two years ago that's where Robin Montgomery is right now and so it's really going to be cool to see her in the qualifying draw. And of course, if you all want to learn more about her, go check out the Cracked Interviews podcast we did with her back in, I want to say November, maybe December, uh, right after she won that Orange Bowl. Uh, Of course, then she went on to have some pro success earlier this year, winning a title as well, I believe in Vegas, uh, right before play stopped. And so really promising talent, one of so many in this qualifying draw. It's going to be really fun just to see all of our pro favorite pro players back on court. It's going to be so fascinating to see how, how many of their bodies hold up to playing these many matches, to playing this high level, this quality of physical tennis. Uh, so it's a really exciting time, again, as a tennis fan, as play gets ready to kick off in Cincy. <coughs> Excuse me. By the way, folks, uh, you that's the qualifying draw, the main draw, coming out tonight, 6.30 p.m. So, of course, be ready to hear my initial reactions, my hot takes to those draws tomorrow uh, when after those come out tonight. And, of course, be also on the lookout tomorrow's mini break and a feature Brett McCormick and a great story he wrote about the future intersection between gambling and professional tennis. Uh, it's, it's really interesting, folks. It was a great conversation already recorded, so be on the lookout for that. But also be on the lookout for the Western and Southern draws. Now, just a couple more things. And then again, you know, while we're talking about New York, just want to set the scene for all of you before we get to today's podcast. You know, U.S. Open doubles wild cards and the doubles fields came out in terms of wild cards. If you were with us on the Tennis One app, you heard Haley Baptiste announce that she and Kim Kleisters got a wild card into doubles last week. Of course, the U.S. Open making that announcement official. Uh, Her and Kim Kleisters getting wild cards, also going to Anne Lee and Bernarda Pera, Christina McHale and Yusue Arcanada, Jess Pagula, Shelby Rogers for the women's side. On the men's side, Eubanks McDonald, check. Escobedo Rubin, check. Harrison Harrison, 
Check. Nicholas Monroe, Nathaniel Lamons, check. Those are all really fun teams. Obviously, very American centric, and that's not going to surprise anyone given the fact that, you know, uh, just where we are at with a global pandemic to offer a wild card to players who might not accept it, who aren't readily available. That's kind of counterproductive. But those are all really exciting teams, particularly if you're a fan, obviously, like I am of Americans tennis. So, not shocked to hear that. You know, again, Baptiste and Lee Uswe Arcanada, all young, talented players on the men's side. You know, the Noah Rubin, Escobedo, Eubanks uh, cohort will always generate some love right now as they continue to hit their prime. Really cool to see Monroe and Lamons get a wild card, though, as well, because those are two exceptional doubles players, uh, both with college tennis ties as well. So, really cool to see that. By the way, don't sleep on that team of Eubanks and McDonald with the Eubanks serve the way Mackie McDonald does everything so smoothly around the court. That's going to be a really fun one to watch. Also, for Baptiste Kleisters, they just played a season of World Team Tennis together, so certainly they know one another. They are excited to play. We should be excited, just as tennis fans, to have any tennis back on court. People, if you complain, oh, I don't want to watch doubles. Doubles is a little bit boring. Remember these past five months when there hasn't been any pro tennis, and just cherish every moment seeing our favorite pros back on the court. Watch singles, watch doubles. Watch it all, folks, because, again, at this point, what else are we doing? We're still all in our homes hoping to get through this global pandemic. Might as well watch some tennis in the meantime and enjoy ourselves. And speaking of which, again, the the draws are out, or I should say the acceptance lists for the men's and women's field in doubles. Shocking news, obviously, the big takeaway, no Bryan brothers in the men's doubles field. Uh, that's surprising, particularly given this was planned to be their last season. One has to wonder... Uh, whether or not that's going to be the case, whether or not uh, they will look at, you know, they will try and put together one more season in a non-global pandemic where they can travel around the world respectfully, receive the sort of adoration they probably deserve. And so, you know, it'll be really, uh, it's obviously really disappointing as tennis fans. We all love the Bryan brothers. We're all so used to seeing them compete week in, week out, day in, day out. Uh, But evidently, again, that is not going to be the case for this year. And we can all understand why they've got thing you know they've got bigger concerns and so they're just not able to right now nevertheless still um it, it's going to be a really cool doubles field obviously you have the defending champions farah and cabal you have kubat and mellow salisbury and rom polisek and dodig granolers zabios you know kravitz and mias uh, and miles you know marach and Klassen. A, a lot of good teams folks we are still going to be treated to some really really exceptional doubles play uh so we can all get excited Excited for all that on the men's side. On the women's side as well, you have the defending champions, uh, Elise Mertens, Arena Sapolenka, back in the draw. That's something we are all excited for, obviously, as well. Uh, you look at the rest of the field, some of the other notable names you can see here. I mentioned all of the wild card teams, but of course, you still have top-ranked teams in the world as well participating. Some missing, I believe the number one team of C and Striskova are not going to be in the field, but Modenovic and Babos will be there, uh, you know, even Ifan Shu and Nicole Melikar are going to be there. Peshki and Shures are going to be there. BMS and Shui Zhang are going to be there. It's going to be a really fun field, folks, so we can all get very excited for that. Uh, but, you know, again, that's the doubles update. That's what I wanted to say from a field perspective. 
from the uh, just again a couple of other updates on the ground. I've mentioned this in a couple of pods. We did learn someone upon arriving to the USDA did test positive. We learned the identity of that person yesterday as well. And by the way, we learned about that test that wasn't testing positive upon 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 arrival. That was testing positive upon later test. I think was their second test since being on site that they tested positive. And it was the physiotherapist of the players Guido Pea who go. Delian, uh, it was their physiotherapist Juan Galvan. Now, of course, before anything else, we want to reiterate we are wishing Juan a safe and speedy recovery. Uh, but of course, now the question is for Guido Pay and Hugo Delian, what happens to them? Because they have been in close and prolonged contact with uh, Juan Galvan, and you know, because of that, they have both elected to withdraw from Cincinnati. I don't know if they elected to as much as they are just forced to withdraw, but they've withdrawn, and the policy says the player has to isolate for 10 to 14 days afterwards if they continue to test negative they will be left out well let's be clear the u.s open starts now in 11 days i believe and so for guido pea for hugo delian are they going to be allowed in the u.s open and there was already an article today out of marsa uh reporting that the players are not happy that these two were removed that because it wasn't them but it was someone in their team box yes they should be isolating but that they shouldn't have been removed from since and you know the, uh, from ellen perez who added details she said they have made it very clear to us that when someone tests positive whoever they are in close Close contact with will be enforced into isolation. For someone to be considered a close contact, they have to have been around that person for a duration of 15 minutes plus. Uh, all of this is to say, you know, these guidelines, these rules were very clearly put in place. Um, now, whether or not uh, these guidelines will be followed, that is a discussion. You know, how closely they'll be followed. Will there be exceptions? That's obviously something I think everyone can, uh, we're, we're all watching for. And one would hope that to maintain the integrity of the bubble, that yeah, these guidelines would be enforced strictly, right? Why have these guidelines if they're just going to say, well, actually, this is an exception. We're going to let these players play. Actually, you know, it's okay. We test them again and they're fine, so we're not going to do that. You have the guidelines in place to maintain the integrity of the bubble to ensure that this event can go safely. And so I understand, Marcia, again, reporting that players are frustrated uh, with this development. But guess what? We're all going to be frustrated by certain developments during this time. This isn't the ideal U.S. Open. This is the only way the U.S. Open, the Western Southern Open can be had, can be conducted safely. And if that means sacrificing someone in your box test positive, I know that sucks. That absolutely sucks. Um, But But guess what, folks? That's just the reality we're living in. If we want to have this tournament happen, there's going to have to be sacrifices on both the tournament organizations, by us as fans, and of course by these players most importantly as well. So that was just an update I thought all of you listeners would want to hear. Of course, we will continue to monitor that situation. You know, Marsa reporting, uh, and again, it's pretty strongly, but Marsa reporting that players are considering a boycott that that's on the table, that the players thought they would have to withdraw only in case of shaking a room uh, of sharing a room with the infected which is not what happened here again i want to do a little bit of digging before i weigh on in on this more but that's fascinating it's really fascinating if players are really going to consider 
boycotting after the safety and health guidelines have put in place to maintain their protection to ensure their safety. It just feels a little bit of counterproductive to me. So it's just an interesting development there. Um, I do also want to say, speaking of interesting developments, Novak Djokovic finally sat down on the record with the New York Times' Christopher Clary to talk about everything that's happened since the Adria tour. I'm going to save that for tomorrow's intro because, folks, believe me, that's its own topic. So quickly rolling through, and then again, I want to get to this 20 minutes in, and we're going to get to this interview, I promise, folks. Uh, Rome entry list is out. It looks tasty, as is the Istanbul WTA Cup equally tasty as well. So those are fun events to be on the lookout for. And then last but not least, I just want to quickly say, you know, a couple of days ago, we lost former UCLA coach Glenn Bassett. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Glenn Bassett was, you know, held the win- he was the winningest coach in UCLA men's tennis history at the time of his retirement, uh, winningest men's coach by percentage in Division One history. He was the first individual to win a team championship as a player, an assistant, and a head coach. And he did it all at UCLA. And so, of course, for all of us here, you know, we all, uh, our, our hearts and our prayers, our thoughts are with the Bassett family, of course, with the larger UCLA tennis family as well. You know, Coach Bassett did so much for the game. And I just wanted to say, of course, we will all, you know, feel this loss deeply. Those of us who understand his importance to the game of college tennis during his time within it. So I did want to mention that, and I apologize for ending on a somber note, but again, I just, it, 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 he is so important to this game. I couldn't go through this podcast without acknowledging that. Of course, I also want to acknowledge, and not the best transition here, I do apologize, but you know, the reason we are able to do these podcasts day in, day out, week in, week out, support causes like we do, such as college tennis or the many amazing things happening around the tennis world is because of the support we also get from our friends at Midwest Sports. And I'll keep it short today because we're already 20 plus minutes into this intro for those of you who have any needs from your tennis equipment, whether it be shirts, shoes, socks, shorts, uh, rackets, strings, grips, grommets, you name it, they've got it at Midwest Sports. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use the promo code CR15, 15% off your order, free two-day shipping on all orders, exceeding $75, free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, and of course, best of all, you'll let them know that we here at Cracked Rackets sent you there. So MidwestSports.com, the promo code is CR15. 15. All right. Busy times, obviously, in the tennis world. Didn't want to leave any of you folks hanging. But of course, we have another fantastic episode of Getting to the Point for you. So without further ado, let's talk to Orange Bowl, Boys and Girls 12s and 14s director, a successful tennis coach himself, Robert Gomez. Joining us on today's edition of Getting to the Point is a tournament director for the 12s and 14s Orange Bowl, a former USDA player development coach, current high-level coach as well, Robert Gomez. Robert, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Uh, Thanks for having me. Oh, of course, it is our pleasure, and obviously, uh, your uh, background indicates you are steeped in the history of the game. You, tennis has been a big part of our, uh, your life, but for our listeners who may not know about that, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started? Sure. Uh, so I started late to the game for uh, by most competitive standards. I really didn't take tennis up until eighth grade, freshman year in high school. Right around then, I uh, played my first tournament when I was in the 16s. Funny story is that the 
my first tournament was at Moore Park in the uh, Overtown area here in Miami. And Bobby Curtis was the tournament director, who is uh, the, the grandfather of uh, the godfather, I should say, of, uh, of junior tennis here in Florida. And he sold me my first USTA card. So that was my first tournament. I had the privilege of playing uh, the number two seed guy who was, uh, sorry, number two player in the state. who was the number one seed. And I was like, thanks, Bobby, for, uh, you know, breaking my cherry that, uh, in that way. But, uh, yeah, so there you go. Um, so that's how I got started playing. Played at Beach High, um, was lucky enough to get a scholarship to St. Louis University, played tennis for them, and then uh, started coaching afterwards and got involved with the USTA quite a bit, training centers, collegiate camps, all that kind of stuff. Was fortunate enough to have a couple of good players come through my, uh, through my mitts uh, as I was growing up and you know being a young coach and got to go to some nationals, meet a lot of good players like, like Andrew and Mark and... Uh, got to work with a, a little bit uh, with each of them. So, yeah. So you got to work with Mark Aerosmith and Andrew as coaches or as players? Uh, so I was a coach and they were young juniors at the time, yeah. Oh, so we it's story time here on the podcast and Mark oh and Andrew obviously joining us. They <laughs> can sit back in the background. If Let's start with Mark uh, because I feel like I can imagine Andrew actually being good. But describe <sighs> Mark Aerosmith, the young tennis player. So, uh, rubber finger, um, was, was quite the, was quite the player, uh, didn't like to move too much, but then again, he didn't have to, cause he just kind of played that slapping blap style forehand that he just like smacked from anywhere that he was on the court. And, uh, when they were going in, he was tough to beat. Um, you know, got a little hot under the collar once in a while if things weren't going his way and he wasn't, uh, afraid to show a little bit of emotion, which kind of got his juices flowing and sometimes brought him back into the into the fold and uh started playing some pretty good tennis if andrew if i don't re- if i don't <clears throat> if i recall he was uh, more of a grinder um kept a lot of balls in the court just uh you know kind of a lunch pill kind of guy kept a lot of balls in the court he was one of those lenny dystra tough out kind of guys that uh <clears throat> got better as he got older i think his his best tennis was played probably in the late 16s and 18s if i'm not mistaken in the juniors anyway um, correct me if I'm <laughs> wrong. I think that that's no, correct, no, that's, right? that's correct. That's correct. Yeah. Lenny Dykstra, that's pretty good. I like that. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. Yeah, yeah. I feel like Mark. What would you respond to your characterization there? I mean, that was pretty. Uh, that was pretty complimentary. I mean, I would. I, I, I snapped. <laughs> I snapped quite a bit on the court sometimes. Uh, I've had some good. Uh, you know, in the last couple of years with some kids that I coached uh, through college recruiting, I've. You know, I've been back in touch with a lot of guys that I competed against. And, you know, a kid that I coach is quite well-behaved and very mild-mannered on the court. And, and sometimes they they point out that that must have been important to me coaching them because I, I was pretty poor at that as a player. Um, so, yeah, yeah the, forehand, the forehand's accurate. I mean, I've, I'm pretty certain I hit Golub in the parking lot of a mobile gas station with a forehand one time. <laughs> so, Actually, it's actually a true story also yeah. for uh, another yeah. time. But no, Robert and, uh, Robert and I, you know, cross paths numerous times, not only as a player, but coaching as well now. So yeah. uh, way back, I mean, Robert had some of the best players in Miami growing up. And a lot of those guys were my friends as well. And yeah, so we cross paths on many occasions. Mm-hmm. 
So then let me throw this question at you, Robert, because it's one that's thrown a lot around, around a lot in the American junior tennis world. Obviously, a ton of talent resides in Florida. There's a lot of talent in California as well. In your opinion, pound for pound, which state produces more tennis players? Oof. Oh, man, I tell you, that's... I'm going to have to go Switzerland on you and just say it's pretty 50-50. I mean, I think it depends on the year. It depends on the gender, the the age group that you're talking about. Um, you know, Florida has the the advantage of having all these academies here. And, and one of the national training centers, obviously, well, the home of American tennis is here now. So some of our numbers might get fudged a little, little bit because we have a lot of people that move here from other sections. And, uh, and we'll get the credit for it. Um, you know, I, I think, I think the other sections to be quite frank have definitely caught up. Um, I don't think it's just Florida and Southern Cal, particularly Southern Cal anymore. Like it used to be, I mean, Midwest has been producing players for quite a long time and they run pretty deep, um, you know, in their, in their rankings, like, you know, their 20th ranked players, a damn good player, like our 20th ranked player is or Southern Cal's. Um, you know, Eastern's a strong section. Uh, Texas has always been strong. Southern is always strong just because they're so big. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great rivalry. I think if it's, uh, if it's clay courts, then for sure, you're going to have to give the Florida players the nod. If it's hard courts, then you may have to give uh, Southern Cal the nod, at least on average anyway. Um, you know, like I said, it depends on the year, depends on the gender, but it's, that's always, we're always at the top. I mean, we're always inside the top four for sure. Mm-hmm. No, my only counter to that would be Eastern is not a good district. Nothing good. All of those East Coast kids, if they're good, they move to Florida. And so uh, I feel like at that point, you can just kind of write them off as a yeah. USDA section at Zonals. Um, yeah. But for you, you know, obviously you have been steeped in tennis coaching for quite a bit of time. And here on getting to the point, I'm sure Mark gave you the pitch, but we like to talk about, you know, the importance of fitness, of nutrition in the modern game. And I'm curious in the, your time coaching the game, how, has your approach to those two things changed? Do you find yourself taking, you know, uh, coaching a player to, you know, improve their fitness or take their nutrition off the court more seriously? Do you find yourself enforcing those topics now, maybe more than you used to? Absolutely, no, no question about it. I think if uh, if fitness is not a serious component of your program, you're not going to be competitive. Um, it's not just about. Uh, you know, how well you can hit the ball. Uh, so much of it is, it's, it's almost like a, like a gym class, you know, you're like throwing medicine balls from corner to corner. It just seems like every player and it's trickled all the way down into the, into the junior ranks that they, they get around the court really well. They can get, they can cover doubles alley to doubles alley, not even single sideline to single sideline, but these guys, and girls, they can get out outside the doubles alleys and still produce a heck of a shot. And uh, I'm, I'm amazed that they're not even winded. You know, like after a couple of points, you look at them and I would be like in traction and uh, these guys are bouncing around ready for the next ball. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. Um, the nutritional side of thing, um, it's a little more difficult to, to really control unless you're the players are living with you or they're part of your full time program and, and you're really around them a lot to, to see what what they're eating and making sure that you're educating the parents. But but absolutely, the discussion definitely comes up more. Um, you see the kids making a lot better choices, you know, staying away from, you know, high sodium foods and, uh, you know, just junk food in general and uh, eating a lot more fruits, more vegetables and not giving you such a hard time about it. Um, 
you know, staying away from sodas and things like that. And, and even Gatorades, you know, trying to dilute the Gatorades or look for better supplement uh, for electrolytes and things like that. Then, uh, and sometimes I think, you know, the, the Gatorades can be a little sugary. So um, <clears throat> it's definitely prevalent for sure. I mean, if you're not doing that, then you're, you're pretty, you're not really taking this seriously as you can, or you should be. And to, and to piggyback on that, Robert, um, from a player standpoint, you know, uh, obviously you've been coaching for, for a long time, been through numerous different decades of tennis. And what, um, what do you see from a player standpoint, um, the difference between players maybe 20 years ago to players today? What's, what's the biggest difference you see in players? Uh, well, I think uh, the commitment level for one for one um on, on one hand like so it just seems like everybody homeschools now you know if you're a pretty serious tennis player then there's a very good chance that you're studying online through some sort of correspondence and you're able to spend a lot more time on the tennis court where that was something that was more reserved for let's say quote-unquote academy kids like if you were at Bolotieri's or you know Saddlebrook or something like that then yeah you were two hours in the morning, an hour of fitness, two hours in the afternoon. Well, now that's everywhere. I mean, that's pretty much the, the normal schedule for most kids. So they're just getting a lot of on-court time and more match play where, you know, when, when, when Andrew and, and, and Mark were growing up, they probably were part of really good after-school programs. And, um, you know, I'm from Jackson. All... I'm from yeah. Jackson. Remember, there's, there's, <laughs> there wasn't any uh, after-school program up here. Yeah, that's why used to come down to us for for long weekends and things like that. But yeah. um, you know, you had your your either your club pro in your in your lesson, and then maybe you'd set up a practice match, and maybe there was a drill group that met once or twice a week. Andrew, if I'm not mistaken, you were over at Kendalltown for quite a bit, and you know, and uh, Willie yeah. Alboni was there, and he had a he had a good program with some good players. So they would, yeah. but it would be you know concentrated like in a two or three hour session, and that was pretty much it, like four to seven. Well, now everyone does that plus they do a nine to 11 and then they do a midday fitness, you know, type of thing. So my point is that in the past you were pretty limited. You either did a lot of drills or maybe there was a match day, you get in a couple sets or you played a lot of tiebreakers. Now kids are doing the drills, they're doing their fitness and then they're going out and playing a couple sets in the afternoon. And you do that five, six days a week and yeah, I mean, it's hard not to get good. And so to compare the kids from today to what the kids were doing before, you know, you're not really comparing an apple to an apple because they're just spending so much more time on the court. Now, there are some negatives to that, you know, like a lot more injuries and kids burning out and things of that nature. And kids that, in, you know, a lot of not not all the kids, because obviously the top kids are the top kids. But I would say that it just seemed that the kids in the past, they, they, they figured things out better than kids do today. Like today, kids stroke production is off the charts, you know, like everyone knows, you know, what a semi-open stance is and, you know, weight transfer and you know, how to get the slot position on your serve and all that kind of stuff. Um, but sometimes they don't know how to like figure things out and just troubleshoot for themselves. Like it's like they're waiting to be spoon fed or someone's got to tell them what to do. Um, I mean, Andrew, you're, you're doing a lot of coaching right now with multiple players and I, and I know Mark is, is, is as well, but I, I have kids right now that they're playing in a level four and they can't feed. Like they don't know how to feed a ball. Like they have to, drop feed it and rip it with topspin i'm like dude you, get, you have yeah. a national rank and you can't feed with a continental grip <laughs> i think it's funny you bring that up because you know i just had a com i just had a conversation with my whole group about being self-sufficient being yeah. a little bit more self-sufficient and not reliant 
on everything your coach is saying or looking for mom and dad while you're playing, yep. you know, stuff like that. So yeah. absolutely. It's a hundred percent true. I think back yeah. in the day, I think back in the day we were definitely more self-sufficient, but that had a lot to do with the way parents were back then. Now, you know, you look at, you look at the way the world is, it's just not, it's not the same, you know, yeah. not the same. You, you can't coach the same way as you did 15 years ago. That's for sure. No, so. no, that's yeah, that's, Robert. That's, yeah, I was glad you just mentioned that because I was going to say, I mean, you got to, um, I don't know, maybe two years ago at intersectionals, like you coached, um, Logan, one of those guys that I coached. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was going to ask your thoughts on that because it's actually, he's a guy who, you know, there's one other good junior in North Florida and he did, you know, six hours a week or so with me and. It truly was. I'd send him to a national tournament by himself, no parent, no coach, and say, figure it out. Um, and everyone seemed to look at him like that was the craziest thing in the world. Like, you know, I can't believe you don't have a crew here with you and this and that. And right. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it was a little bit more like we did it in the past of just, you know, like nobody had to tell me to hit a lob when I was back at the fence. I mean, you just fr- figure it out. Um, yeah. But yeah, it doesn't doesn't seem like that's. Uh, but yeah, like you said, every kid at nationals has beautiful strokes. It's just most of them don't know how to play the game. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Strange. I, just to piggyback off of that, and not to get you guys off your rocking chairs, but as someone who can speak to you know the training experience, that was a joke, by the way. I don't think you're on your rocking chairs. I, <laughs> I did not to just just to be clear here, but. I I can't say I completely agree with you guys. And look, I stopped training for tennis. How old am I now? 24. I really didn't need a coach after 16, 17 because I knew I wasn't going to be playing beyond that. But, you know, we still ran just as hard. We still had days where, you know, it's three hours in the sun. And, I, you know, to your point, I guess what I'm trying to say is more than anything else, I think it's the specialization. I don't think it's the, you know, it's not the kids work less hard now than they did before i think it's the fact that it's only tennis right and that sort of hampers your development i don't know what do you think about that uh coach gomez no i 100 percent. you know one of the when you when you asked the question initially i was thinking okay i could go different different avenues on this and you know part of like you asked what's what's different about today and like there's an over professionalization of the sport you know uh so you're using the word specialization and you're absolutely right so i think that kids are training like professionals at a much younger age um so like eight nine ten year old kids and you see them with like the the six racket bag and you know they they're they're you know they're using hybrid strings and 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 all that and you know it's like it's almost like yeah no are they working hard absolutely my daughter this whole summer who just really started taking tenor seriously about a year and a half ago and she's doing the same thing two hours in the morning. She has a, a one hour fitness instructor and two hours. So she's killing herself. There's no question about it. But, you know, I, I can just see that sometimes they just don't know how to figure things out. Like it's everything's always been it's ready made for them. Like they don't know how to pick up the phone and set up a practice match or, you know, you send them out to go hit on their own because I'm giving a lesson. Say here, here's two cans of balls. Go, go, go do something. And then I'll watch them and like they're waiting to be told like what to do you know once they once they'll, they'll do what you ask them to do and they'll do it extremely well at a very high level 
but you've got to tell them what to do. And then if you don't tell them the next thing, they're like looking at you like, all right, well, what do you want me to do now? You know, type of thing. So that's what I meant. Now, the, the kids are working hard. There's no question about it um, that they're working hard. I just feel that there's there's something that's been lost in the, uh, the, the self-discovery uh, of the sport, you know, like kind of just figuring it out and just kind of like what Mark alluded to with with Logan, like sending him to a tournament and hey, get go get your practice court. You got to get yourself up and you got to know what to eat. And yeah, call me with the results and let's talk a little bit before the match and uh, you'll call me after the match and let me know how it goes. And I can't tell you how many times I did that with players that they both know where I'd send them to uh, to a national event, find them, you know, a place to stay, you know, get them housed by a family, by a host family. And they would call me, you know, prior to their matches and after their matches. And we'd talk about it. And they were going to a national. And the first time, you guys probably don't know this, but the first time Andres ever won a gold ball was at the International Hardcore Championships. That was the first time I didn't go to a national tournament with him. So I don't know. <laughs> he might have should have done that a lot sooner <laughs> without me. But, uh, you know, he beat Bahaley. He beat Jamin Thompson. And uh, uh, one other guy, I think, either Overhoser or Brandon Hawk or whatever. It was like his best tournament that he ever had. And he did it without anybody there, with a host family, you know, just figuring it out as an 18-year-old. So, um, and I think that th there's room for that, I think, in, in everyone's development. And it's something that they ought to do. I think there should be a couple tournaments where the parent just drops the kids off and just says, hey, just call me when the match is over and I'll come back and pick you up. And either we're going to go to Subway or I guess I'm taking you home if you lost, one or the other. Um, and I don't see enough of that. I think everything is really monitored and, and, and scrutinized and there's a lot of helicoptering going around like people are just hovering all the time and i get it you know there's you're investing a lot of time money energy into it so you want to like facilitate everything and make sure it goes as well as possible but i feel that there needs to be more room for kids trial and error falling down and having to get themselves back up Mm -hmm. And just to follow up on that, because and I, I want to go to Andrew because he made a really good point. He said it's as much on the parents as it is the kids. Can you explain what you mean by by that, Andrew? Just elaborate a little bit further because I I agree with you. I think you know as much as it is kids now. Yeah, it used to that structure. They're used to what their parents provide them. You know, a yeah. kid is is limited by the confines of what their parents do or don't allow right so if those parents aren't allowing those kids that freedom to operate that you know forcing them to be on their own two feet make their own decisions i know for a fact and maybe this is because my parents aren't the best athletes they were like look alex we're gonna put you in a position to succeed what you do with it is on you so that's my own personal experience which is all i can turn to but of course i've seen the overbearing parents i know the parents who have hey it's two bananas on the changeover and you look in the cooler and it's all scripted out you know what is when you you know what i guess can you speak yeah. a little bit from the parents perspective as well? yeah absolutely i think um i think at, at in this day and age and mark and uh, robert can for sure attest to this um you know coaching now is is a lot more difficult you know robert brought up my coach willie abone and whoever knows him knows he's very difficult very tough i mean as tough as it gets man i can promise you i never went home one time and complained because i knew if i went home and complained that it was on me like it was never a, the phone call wasn't going to my coach that it was like, oh, really? So you're complaining. You must have been doing something wrong, you know. And I think now it's very touchy feely. Now kids, like Robert said, it's a lot of helicoptering, you know, every little detail, every 
you know, you get upset with a kid, you try to discipline and there's always a question why, you know, why, why, what did they do? Did they do this wrong? What, what's, what's wrong? What's the matter? Rather than, you know, Hey, if your coach is on you that you're doing something wrong, you're doing something wrong. I don't want to hear about it. You know? <clears throat> so I think there's a lot of babying. I think there's a lot of helicoptering. I think there's a lot of being done for these kids nonstop. You, you know, they need ice, their parents run and get it. They need, you know, don't forget to stretch. They tell them everything to do rather than like Robert said, again, there should be tournaments where it's like, no one's allowed in except the players <laughs> and go let, let them duke it out. Whoever warms up the best, whoever stretches the most, whoever focuses, gets away and doesn't joke around before matches is probably going to do better, you know, and yeah. let them see that, let them see, you know, prepare on your own. Who, who's preparing better without mom and dad running, you know, Hey, don't forget this. Don't forget that. Hey, you have, you're, you're on court four. Hey, you're this. Don't forget to check in. You know, it's just <clears throat> constant, constant hovering. And, uh, you know, I, my, my, my parents weren't like that at all. Um, from that standpoint, definitely not my dad. It was a sink or swim. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. You do, do it right or you're going to lose. And that's it. Yeah. And, no. and he'd let me lose. So. Mm -hmm. No, completely. And by the way, I, I feel like, you know, I responded after Mark said, Mark, I didn't want you to think your comment sent me off. It's just, you know, in general, I think it's twofold, right? It's just as much the parents as it is the kids. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's I, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that um, that that kid Logan has had some success in juniors. I got, well, had a lot of success in juniors and that it was that his parents went from you know calling me every single day to allowing the kid to drive by him well i drove him to 18's clay courts dropped him off drove home went to a rolling stones concert stayed home for four days and said i'll come back for the finals if you're in it you know and it's and the parents were fine with that and that's pretty rare nowadays from you know i'll talk to gobble andrew a lot about that and other coaches and they're like are you kidding me half these kids i coach would have had a trainer with them a physio with them and you know it's like i mean at some point you got to uh you got to figure some stuff out for yourself mm -hmm. no i completely agree with you one of my other theories and this is something because you know the way tournaments have changed and the way people chase utr i want my utr to be higher mm -hmm. or the usta ranking system i need more points so i can ascend higher up the rankings list a lot of people will play a lot of tournaments you know mindlessly throughout the schedule and during a year and by the way andrew you said to have only kids at these events given the way we're going with covid we might only be able to have just the players on site for tournaments moving forward but you know just for these kids and i'll go back to you here robert i have this theory i call it the ground stroke game generation nowadays if two kids are going out to play they're going to play best of three ground stroke games to 21 they're not going to play practice sets they're not going to play practice matches with your friend or with their friends do you think that might be part of the problem as well that these kids you know mark talked about not knowing how to play the game that they've done so much drilling and yeah the strokes look beautiful but there's just not enough match play in their you know routine schedules yeah, uh, that's a good point. And I think if, if they're part of a traditional after school program, let's say, like they go to traditional school like that and they're in an after school program, that could be the case because, you know, there's a business model to this as well. Right. And the typical is a four to one ratio. Maybe you're lucky enough and you get a three to one ratio. if Somebody didn't show up that day for whatever reason. 
So if you've got six courts and you've got something like 20 players, it's really going to be difficult to play sets, you know? So um, you're playing baseline points, like you said, maybe tiebreakers, two points off, two, point, two points on, team singles, all the drills and, and exercises that, that everybody on the call knows. Um, so yeah, it's going to be harder to play true sets. Um, but yeah, that's where you have to really get creative. And we do have UTR, um, challenge matches. So the matches do count and they do count towards the UTR. Uh, it's been a, a, we haven't been able to do it this summer, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. Um, but when we were doing it through the school year and last summer, I got to tell you, I had 10 courts, 20 players, they had 90 minutes and then another 20 players came in 90 minutes later and the coaches since it was part of our summer program i used them as the officials and we got to be honest it felt like a tournament nobody was talking nobody was messing about everybody was taking it seriously and we really didn't even need officials you know and the parents they just dropped off the kids and there weren't that many many parents a couple parents here and there particularly on the younger age groups but uh you know certainly no self-respected 16 year old boy is going to let his mom sit there and watch him play a match um, especially unless it's like a Kalamazoo or a clay court or something like that to be like, mom, go home, get away from them. So I think that, uh, if you're part of that after school program m- model, well then yeah, it's going to be more difficult to play sets. But if, like I said, a lot of the top players or most of the top <clears throat> players, I think it's this way up in the North. Most of them are homeschooling or some sort of modified school schedule. So I think they are getting a lot more sets in than they did even when Mark and, and Andrew were growing up, you know, cause I, oh, yeah. both of you guys went to traditional school, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. So I yeah, like you're playing school. tons of sets. You know. Yep. It was hard. It was hard. It was hard. Yeah. Um, no. So yeah. That's my take. No, I completely agree with you, and I, I I'm glad you point out that the model for so many clubs is yeah, you're going to have you know 16 to 20 kids in your program in four to five courts, and because of that, you are going to be with four on a quarter. You're going to be doing something with drilling something uh, along those lines. So yeah, I, I completely agree with your point. Uh, to something else larger, and obviously we have Mark and Andrew on, so we got to talk a little bit about Aerobar. Uh, I, I just think players growing up in particular, the education about what you should be doing from a nutrition standpoint on court is so poor, or at least it's not nearly as developed as it probably should be. And I suppose as you get to the higher and higher levels, it becomes more and more, uh, the players become better and better educated. But, you know, do you think, regardless of your age group, regardless of how serious you're playing tennis, if you're playing a competitive match, you should be having things like aero bars, you know, that you're eating during the match, that you're refueling yourself. How important is that to performance, Robert? Oh, I mean, I think it's critical. Um, since I have control of my daughter, I regularly, like even even today, you know, I, I, I gave her a sports drink. I said, here, do you want some? And she's like, no, it's okay. I'm not thirsty. I'm like, sweetie, that's not the right mindset you don't wait till you get thirsty the idea is to hydrate and to keep yourself at a at a high level so that you don't ever start to feel like you're running out of energy or man i'm really getting thirsty or i'm starting to get dehydrated or whatever the case might be so i think fueling up is 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 absolutely essential i think the beauty of the arrow bar is that that a it tastes good The, the kids like it and the adults like it for that matter they taste good and it's it's easy right you don't have to like try to combine different things. Let me get a little bit of a banana for my potassium and and whatever that might be. Let me get a little bit of this for my vitamin C. It's got everything like, and it's right there in a, in a package for you and it tastes good and it's, and it's, and it's it's easy to store. So, um, I think, I think it's critical and I think you need to be fueling up all the time 
not just like when you feel hungry or you're starting to feel like you're, you know, you're getting lightheaded or dry, you know, or uh, dehydrated. No, I completely agree with you. And can you talk about some of the misnomers out there as well? And you sort of alluded to it earlier. Gatorade can get on the sugarier side because, you know, how important is not only putting something into your body, but, you know, again, the specifics of what it is? Well, no doubt. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not a nutritionist, but I mean, I think I've been around long enough to know what eating clean and drinking clean is versus not. I think uh, as far as like misconceptions that are out is that, you know, cold cuts, like, you know, let me just get some, some turkey, some turkey meat and that type of thing. And they're not looking at the the sodium intake and things and how much, um, how much salt things have and, you know, how much you're going to hold water and things like that. Uh, bread, you know, eating, you know, bleached white bread versus eating, you know, good whole grain breads and things like that and baked potatoes and brown rice. You know, you walk through, I've been lucky enough to get to go to some of the, the player lounges at some of the slams. And it's what really funny, like I'll watch, uh, I was watching Golbus one day get ready for a match at the French. And I'm not exaggerating you. He had a mountain of brown rice with a little bit of grilled chicken on the side. That's it. I mean, and he ate, and he, he was playing like in 90 minutes. And I'm like, man, that's a lot of food. But it was what he was eating. I'd go to the U.S. Open and you see Nadal, you know, eating and he's like eating the same thing. Like, I guess brown rice is like a big, uh, like a big thing. I saw Julian there, you know, getting ready for his doubles match and same thing, big thing, a mountain of rice. And then he had like some low sodium, like soy sauce or something like that, that that's what they were about to eat. So, you know, you start seeing this time and time again, you start thinking, OK, well, there must be something to it. If the guys that are making a living doing this are are eating those things, then. Um, they must be doing something. Uh, must be doing something right. They must be serving a purpose. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree with you. And I'm glad you <laughs> threw in the fact that Arrow bars are delicious. I can't emphasize that enough. I know I am biased here, but it, it really is. It, it's just. It, I always say it's a delicious way to start your day, as Mark <laughs> and Andrew know. And so, seriously, I, I could not agree with you more. And yeah, I think more and more the, with the game, the increased importance on physicality, regardless of the level, it's it's just becoming a more physical sport. Things like nutrition, like fitness, they become the little factors that can distinguish you uh, from everyone else out there. But since we have you here, Robert, I also want to have a little bit of fun because I know you have been involved with the Orange Bowl for quite a bit of time. Can you tell us how that relationship started? Yeah, so I took over as the director of tennis for the city of Coral Gables, which hosts uh, the boys and girls 14s and 12s divisions um, at two of the centers there, at our two center centers there. And so I got on the committee probably back in 2007 and have been pretty helpful, I hope, in the selection <laughs> process and in the seating process, uh, which is kind of tough like in the 12s and the 14s because it's not like there's a world ranking in the 12s and 14s like there is in the itf so you really do have to scour a lot of draws and you know i've, I've been around long enough to know what the big tournaments are like le Petitas in france or team tennis in england um and obviously they have the the world team championships in august and then all the qualifiers for that so fortunately with the internet you can really scour and like look up results and look up players names and see what kind of results they have so we try to get the selection process and the seating right um so that's how it kind of got started and then just trying to you know look at it from a um from a participant standpoint you know the, the times that i've had players that have played the event what did it feel like as a coach and now that my daughter played her first qualifying event last year well what does it feel like as a parent and a coach and what kind of experience do do we want these players that are traveling from i think 52 countries is what we had last year uh, what kind of experience do we want them to have? And obviously, 
we want to be a showcase. We want to be considered the premier, you know, junior event in the world. Um, and there's some good competition out there with Le Petit Das in France is an amazing event. Um, so the stakes are high and, uh, that's, that's how it's, that's how it's evolved. And I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's great. We've had a, a lot of great players come through there. So it's been fun. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I want to ask about those players. I lied. Unfortunately, I have to sneak in one more serious question. This can be where you swear at me, though, Robert. But, <laughs> you know, obviously, uh, the Orange Bowl, as you mentioned, even at the 12th and 14th level, it is the, you know, one of, if not the premier uh, tournament on the junior calendar. It's one everyone across the globe knows about. It's because so much international talent flows through it. You know, throughout the course of history, you can go even, you know, players that uh, are still relevant now, the uh, uh, Del Po the Murrays, the Monfises of the world on the men's side, on the women's side. Obviously, Coco Goff won there recently. Sophia Kennan won there recently. You can go on and on and on. And, you know, you know how much that Orange Bowl means to so many juniors who, if they have success there, maybe it offers them that first hint of belief in themselves that, oh my gosh, I can compete at an international level with the world's best. And with all of that being said, Robert, given we're in the midst of a global pandemic, you know, how difficult has it been for you guys to try and organize this tournament around that? And, you know, given everything going on, how, what is the, the winds feeling in terms of playing the event versus obviously, you know, making the decision to cancel it and knowing what that would mean to the tennis schedule? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. We, uh, we have a weekly call, um, where we're, we're, you know, discussing all of the different factors that are involved. Um, obviously the, the safety of the event and the, the, the number of cases of COVID that are occurring here in the South Florida area, particularly in Miami, um, which were the highest in the, in the state. Um, we've, our numbers have definitely improved, so it's gotten better, but it's still a lot higher than, than anyone feels comfortable with. Just had a call today. It's, I gotta be honest, it's not looking really promising. Um, when you consider, the, the timelines for registration, deadlines, selection, um, people making their hotel reservations. We got to like book the hotels. We got to enter contracts with them. Um, there's guarantees that are involved. You have all the officials that you have to look at. Um, and then, of course, there's is the city even going to allow us to run the event? Uh, right. As of mm-hmm. as of now, I've had to cancel all of my local events. We had to cancel a, a level six event. We've got a level four splits teams event that's coming up, which we're not 100% sure if we're going to be able to host. So there's that, you know, and um, we do use Crandon Park as well <clears throat> for, for for one of the divisions over on, on Key Biscayne. And that's a Dade County Park. And as of right now, they're, they're not even doing programming. You can play singles, you can play doubles, and you can take a private lesson and that's it. So, um, you know, the, you know, the, the foot's going to hit the road soon. And it's, I think just after Labor Day, we'll have to make a final decision as to whether or not we're going to be able to host it. And then the last thing to consider is international travel. You've still got some countries that um, are not able to leave. You know, you can't just go out and travel leisurely. Um, they're allowing it, let's say, for the U.S. Open or for Cincy because of the special conditions of, you know, professional sports. But um, as of right now, you can't leave Spain. You can't just get on a plane and, and come over. We've got a, a coach that's been trying to get over here for quite a while, David Marrero, a you know, former world-class doubles player, and he can't get out. And um, <clears throat> so you got to figure that that's going to affect uh, everyone's ability to, to travel. And is it going to be? Is it going to hurt the integrity of the event if you know 35% of the players just can't do it for whatever reason? 
And then you got to look at the financial part of it. You know, the, the pandemic has crippled, you know, financial, you know, finances across the board. I mean, there's just people that really just can't afford it. And I could see a lot of people right around that December Christmas time saying, you know what, this just isn't a great year. You haven't been tra- playing that much. You haven't played that many tournaments. Is it really worth going all the way to the United States to play? Why don't we just skip it and we'll just look for 2021. So those are all the things that we're, you know, we're, we're considering, we're looking at. It's, it's not easy. Obviously uh, it's, it's, it is the premier event in those, in those age groups here in the United States worldwide. And uh, you, you'd hate to not give the kids an, an opportunity here in Florida to be able to, to compete there. But at the same time, um, I think this is bigger than than sport. And this is, you know, this is people's health and, and their safety that we got to you know, really take into consideration. Mm-hmm. And for those parents who might listen to this podcast who are intrigued just to go through that again, Labor Day is when you guys are aiming to make a decision. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, always appreciate when we can make a little bit of news. I know parents out there planning their junior schedules will appreciate that. Now comes the fun part, I promise, because again, right. you, 2007 is when you joined. You've seen some really cool names come through the 14s and 12s Orange Bowl already. You look at some of the winners. You know, I could argue that 12-year-old Bernard Tomich is the most talented 12-year-old in tennis history. You've had players like that. You know, More recently, Bianca Andreescu, Katie Volleynets, Andre Rublevs of the world. In your time working with the Orange Bowl, who's the most talented 12- to 14-year-old you've seen? Since 2007? Uh, Since 2007. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go recently Coco Goff. I mean, she was just filthy. <laughs> When she won the twelves, and then here's the scary part: is that it's not that impressive to say that Coco Golf won the twelves because you kind of like, all right, well, now of course I could see that. Not a, not a big. The fact that she did it only three years ago, that's the scary part. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know it's going to be four years this December that she won the girls twelves, and here she is, like what round of sixteens at Wimbledon. You're just like, how is that possible? You know, in today's game, you know, maybe back when Tracy Austin as a fourteen year old got to the finals of the the U S open or won the U S open. You're like, okay, but today's game with all these women that are like incredibly fit. That's incredible. Um, who else? So can I throw one name at you? Oh, that's a good one. I was going to say, and again, regardless of their pro success, I would make the case that 14-year-old Stefan Kozlov, again, best 14-year-old oh, yeah. tennis player maybe ever. Was there ever someone like that who you're just like, oh, my God, I, I don't know how this kid isn't going to make it, and maybe they didn't? I think he was 17, though. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's that's funny. That's a good one. So, yeah, he lost the finals, actually, of the boys 14, so that Korean kid. I think he lost to him in the finals of the 12s, and then he lost to him two years later. In the finals of the 14s, that kid Hong or Kong Hong, I think was his last name. I think Hong. it's Chung Young Sung or something. There you go. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes, that's, yes. that's good. That's a good call. Good for you. <laughs> thank and you. Um, thank you. Yeah, uh, Gazoo type. And um, <laughs> he, uh, so yeah, but yeah, I mean, Stefan, you, you you were always wondering. I mean, his his mind was just so superior to everybody else's. Like his ability to to stay cool under pressure. Never really had a big game. Like there was no one part of his game that you said, "Oh man, that can't miss." He just was just so savvy. So his he just understood the geometry. His tennis IQ on the court was just off the charts for certainly for anybody his age. And and, um, and then it's kind of funny because then he won the eighteens, right? And he beat uh, was it Sissipas? Did he beat Sissipas in the finals? I'm pretty sure. And uh, uh, yeah, the, beat Sissipas in the finals. And but here's what's funny: when the match was over, I was there. I actually gave out the trophy that year. 
every single newspaper person that was there all went over to the pass when the match was over <laughs> to get to talk to him. <laughs> everyone knew who the player well they were right yeah 100 yeah. i mean it was kind of it was kind of funny like you'd look at this and i always wanted to take a picture of it with my phone and i was like man hardly anyone's talking to Kozlov. everyone's talking to sissipas you just knew that kid couldn't miss um yeah so i would say coco Goff recently grigor dimitrov lost in the finals to ryan williams um in the boys 14s which uh, i i taken a lot of my juniors to watch this kid dimitrov he had a great i mean basically it was a, a federal wannabe and just a great one-hander, just the way he moved, the way he carried himself. No. Uh, yeah, there again, so many exceptional players have filtered through the Orange Bowl. I'm he sure it's a really a fun match. time for – yeah, no, no, again, without question. And, you know, I, I heard you earlier name drop Andreas, and I assume you were referring to Andreas Pedroso, right? Right. That's correct, yeah. Uh, oh, so Andres Pedroso, a near and dear, I suppose. Oh, I don't want to. The problem is I can't give away my sources. Needless to say, coach of Virginia College Tennis, near and dear to our hearts here at Cracked Rackets, friend of mine. Was oh. he always the cool and call collected guy he presents himself as? What was young Andreas like? Oh, my God. No, not at all. Not, was, not, a, talk, not a talker. Not at all, man. He was, uh, he was self-deprecating. You suck. Why are you so bad? You can't miss a shot. Here's a name from the past. Huntley, Huntley what was his name? Huntley? Huntley uh, Montgomery, then Huntley Austin. He changed Huntley his name. Austin. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I remember the two of them playing a match, and it was just absurd. Both of them were crying every single point that they, the one guy would lose. They were just crying in the 12s. Both the moms, both of them, them were crying and holding each other, like hugging each other on the side. I was like, yeah. that's pathetic. <laughs> but uh, no, he... Um, he had his challenges. I mean, he was a great kid and he never like it wasn't ever like cheating or or he would never like, you know, go after a player or criticize another player. Or, oh, my God, you suck. You're the worst. How could you lose to this guy? Never things like that. It was always, you know, in he was always like, you know, ripping on himself. So that was always a challenge and cost him a lot of matches and uh, was always a struggle. And actually, it's funny that you say that because I took him to the spring fling in Aiken, South Carolina, and he played oh, yeah. a Florida and he played a Florida guy named Graydon Oliver, who at oh, yeah. that time who had that time was a good player, wasn't an Andres' level, but he was a good player. And Graydon had a great match, played with a, you know, without much pressure, just played loose, went went for it. Andres felt tight, choked, and let the match get away from him and acted like the biggest baby the entire match. And at that point I was so upset of going through this. I'd been coaching Andres since he was ten and I said to myself, that's it. I'm done. I'm not affecting positive change on this kid. He needs another voice. We're going to talk about it. We went back to the hotel. I sat him down and I said, look, uh, this really hurts for me to tell you this, but I think it's time when we get back that I try to help you find somebody else to work with you. And it's probably one of the, cause I, I really, he was, he had a special place in my heart. And so it was hard for me to say that to him. He was devastated and he went back to his room knocked on my door about an hour later and he said can I talk to you and I said what's up and he just said look I thought hard about what you said that's all I thought about and um I hope you'll give me one more chance because I'm not going to let you down this is this is it that's it that's uh, you won't you won't see that from me any, anymore if I lose I lose but it won't be because I'm not giving it my best and I'm just going to beat myself up anyway it was one of those types of conversations and of course I said all right let's give it another shot and things definitely improved it wasn't always great but um 
there, you know, he definitely changed quite a bit there. But uh, yeah, so he wasn't always like that. Uh, he he really started to come into his own, I think, late second year, 16s, first year of 18s, right around then. Did it surprise you to see him now as the head coach at Virginia? Not really. No. I mean, I knew that uh, even when he got uh, he had made a deal with his family, particularly his father, who was in banking, that uh, if he wanted to play professionally and they wanted them, you know, if he wanted them to help him financial fi- financially to do that, that once he stopped playing professionally, that he had to go into banking. He had to go into finance, which he did and went and worked at Baron Stearns. But I, you know, I, I talked to him pretty regularly, like once a month or so, and he was absolutely miserable. He hated it. And the hours that he was putting in and the type of work that he was doing and just the whole culture of it, you know, just was not for him. So he had a hard conversation with his parents and he said, look, I want to get back into tennis. I want to coach. <clears throat> Ironically, he came to work for me uh, for about six months, um, outgrew me very quickly and uh, started working with Ryan Williams, of all people, <laughs> Who's, who, if you know, Ryan was was an absolute nightmare um, on the court when it came to his attitude and his behavior. Uh, great player, great talent, but uh, really not an easy guy to work with and, you know, understood a good job with him. So, um, you know, then when he went to Virginia as as Brian Bowles, assistant coach. Um, I think they, they won like what two national championships there. So when he went and worked for the USTA, so no, I'm not surprised. I mean, he's, uh, that's just, that's just right up his alley, you know, working with like nine, 10 really high character individuals, high level players. And, uh, to get to, you know, to get them not quite a finished product, obviously, but pretty darn good players, obviously going into, uh, going into college. Um, I think that's like, that's right in a sweet spot. No, well then, with that in mind. Hope all of you enjoyed our conversation with tournament director and coach Robert Gomez. I do apologize for the quick ending there. Just a little bit of audio difficulties at the end. You didn't, you you know, we didn't cut out any important content, but we did miss out on us saying goodbye. And of course, we missed out on us saying thank you to Robert for taking the time to chat with Mark, Andrew, and myself. So at the end of this, let me just quickly say huge thank you to Robert for taking the time to chat with us. A huge thank you to Andrew. Andrew and Mark as well for their continued participation and just all that they do to help support these getting to the point episodes. We've had so many great guests, Malvia Washington, Jay Berger, Michael Russell, Lauren Embry, Bjorn Fertangelo, Richard John Menzing, Billy Pate, you know, Ivan Barron. I think that's everyone, but they've all been so spectacular, all, you know, able to provide different insight into the importance of nutrition and fitness. And it's just been great to have these conversations. So a huge thing. Thank you to them and a reminder to all of you listeners to support these episodes. Please, please, please go check out aerobar.com. Use that promo code CRACKED15. Get yourself the only tennis-specific energy bar out there available. Uh, But again, in busy times right now in the tennis world, right? We are all eyes turned to New York for the three-week swing of Western and Southern Open, followed, of course, by the U.S. Open. And we're all really excited for that play to get underway. But perhaps many of you listeners have 
forgotten where we left things off in the tennis world five months ago. Rest assured, our Cracked Rackets team ready to get you all up to speed, all perfectly ready, so that wherever you are watching your matches, you can be the best educated, the most well-informed person on tennis in the room. And of course, again, for all of you listeners, if you're not already, subscribe to this podcast, the Great Shot Podcast, where you know Ben Rothenberg and I have already begun our preview content, but we have a lot of really cool guests lined up as well, so be on the lookout for all of those things. Cracked interviews podcast-wise, we're still rocking and rolling this week. Interviews with UNC All-Americans Brian Cernock and Sarah Davatella, and of course, we're going to be, a, you know, we're rocking and rolling on the website, but we're going to be rolling on video as well, so go subscribe to that YouTube channel. Like, rate, subscribe, review really all of the podcasts, the YouTube channel, uh, just so you don't miss anything that we're releasing upcoming, and of course, you need those more immediate updates. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, it's at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I'm at Great Shot Pod. Shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job they do day in, day out, and of course, we're going to keep them busy over these next couple of weeks, and so I am already saying a, a you know an early thank you to them for all they will do as well. But again, uh, be on the lookout for all of our preview content, because it is coming. A huge shout out, not only to Midwest Sports and Aerobar, but also to our Patreon subscribers for their continued support. We are eternally grateful, uh, because without that, we wouldn't be able to do the things we love to do here at Cracked Racket. So a big shout out again to all of them. But with that being said, for our wonderful guest, Robert Gomez, my co-host, Andrew Golovin, and Mark Aerosmith, our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar, our super producers, Max Fliegler and Daniel Westhoff, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks, that's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. We'll be right back.